If you'll please stand with me in, with the reading of the word. Beginning in Matthew 12, verse 9. Going on from the place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and planned how they might kill Jesus. All right, you guys may be seated. Thank you, Stacy, for reading that for us this morning, and thanks for being here with us this morning. We're going through a couple of stories in the Gospels the last few weeks, and one of the things that we're focusing on is not just reading these stories to learn plot points about maybe what happens at the end of these stories. I think most of us know what happens at the end of the Gospels. Jesus is led away, he's crucified, he's buried, and he rises from the dead. And a question we've been asking is, what should we learn about the things that happen before that happens? What should we be learning from the encounters that Jesus has with people during his lifetime? And one of the things that we're trying to look at in these stories is the invitation we all have to encounter Christ through these encounters in the Gospels. And one of the things about this story in particular is how this person encounters Christ in the midst of a controversy about Sabbath-keeping and laws and purification, Jesus sees to the heart of a bystander, and he heals him. And to frame this story a little bit, I want to, I want to ask you guys, have you ever been in a situation where everybody knows something that you don't know? And honestly, I was thinking about this before last night. We had a great little surprise party, and I was totally blindsided by it. But when you don't know something, and everybody else does, you act in ways that are completely unpredictable. I think about when I was getting ready to propose to Laura, we were doing a surprise engagement, which I've got mixed feelings on, because nowadays engagements are so grand, and you have to do so many things just to measure up, but some of it comes down to how many white lies can you get away with for your girlfriend before they discover what you're up to, and I won't comment on that in terms of foundations for marriage, but you are trying to keep this secret to do something that they're really going to be excited about, but in the time being... They have no idea. And that's how it was with Laura. I wanted to propose on Christmas. And so we have all these traditions in our family about Christmas. And the whole family was together. And we have this tradition where all of the girls, the guys don't really do this as much, wear the, the same Christmas jammies. But we were going to be taking a lot of pictures later. So everybody showed up all done up except Laura. She didn't know. She wasn't in on the plan. And later she was like, I want people to come over to the house and see it, but I'd already had it set up for the engagement. And so everybody in my family was like, no, nah, we don't want to go over there and see it. She's like, man, nobody from my family has called me today. I wonder why. Probably because I told them all, you must keep this secret. Do not say it. Don't give it away. And then she found out that night when I proposed, everything in hindsight made sense. And this is how it is in life. If, if everybody knows something and you don't, what you're doing doesn't make sense. And in this story, what we learn is there's a little bit different spiritual line to this. What you know that you think God doesn't know 
is what will really come to hurt you. If you live your life in such a way, and, and most of us don't think through this, it's not like we think God doesn't actually know, but if you behave in such a way that maybe God doesn't know that little dark place. God, he, I, I go on Sundays and Wednesdays and even Sunday nights sometimes, and I go to my small group, but there's this little area that's just for me. This is just the old self. This is just an old group of friends. This is just something that I've always done. It's the areas in your life where you're living in such a way that God doesn't know about that that really, really comes back to bite us. The principle today is whatever surrendered is healed. This is what the hope we have in the gospel is anything that you surrender to God can be healed, but what is not surrendered is not healed. So we open in this story of a man who has a withered hand. And as Jesus comes in to dispute with the Pharisees, Jesus notices him. And what we're going to see is, in the reading of the scripture, you know the end of this story. He sticks his hand out and Jesus heals him. But I want to back up for a minute because I think this story is the gospel in a microcosm. You know, sometimes people speak about scripture like it's a diamond that if you hold up verses or passages and you turn it, you see their light reflected differently through each of these passages. And what I want to do today is I want to look at this passage in four ways as the story of the gospel in all of our lives in this man with the withered hand. To start, I want to say, what, what is it that we actually get when we encounter Christ? What is it that actually happens when we encounter him? And I think the best example of this is something Martin Luther said. He said, when you come to Christ, it's called the great exchange. It's almost like you and Jesus come face to face, and he takes his white and beautiful clothes. He is in a perfect, righteous life, and he hands that to you, and you take your sinful life and give it to him. He pays for it. You get the life that he lived that you didn't deserve, and you have made a great exchange. Another image of what happens is in the book of Isaiah where it says, though our sins are like scarlet, he has washed us white as snow. It's the image of taking a garment or taking ourselves, which are covered in sin, and applying the blood of Jesus Christ, which washes us completely white as snow. When we come to Christ, I think some of us underestimate what it is that he really wants to do with you. He doesn't want to have an encounter with you and then return you back to your normal programming. What he wants to do is transform every part of your life. And this is why the encounters we have with Christ are not just something that happens at conversion. It's something that happens through your whole life, every day, multiple times each day. You are meeting with him. You're having the blood of Jesus applied to you. You're having your clothes washed white. You're having your sin washed away. And the Christian life is one of perpetual encounter with him. So what's the first thing we see here about this man with the withered hand? The first is he was invisible and Jesus saw him. He was invisible and Jesus saw him. I probably don't need to tell most of you that a person in the ancient world who is disabled in this way is not looked upon with any kind of honor. I think in some circles today, we actually honor people who have disabilities. We actually cater to those people, but it was the opposite in the ancient world. If you were deformed or disabled or you had something wrong, you were actually cast aside to the fringe, to the margins of society in the first century. And so this person would have been invisible to those around them. 
not involved in the civic space, not involved in the religious space, not involved in a family space, but Jesus actually breaks these boundaries and he sees a person who is invisible to the world and he decides he's going to do something about it. Now this is why I say this is the gospel in miniature because Jesus throughout the gospels does stuff like this. He takes people that nobody cares about and he says, but I care about them. There's this amazing essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord by B.B. Warfield. He's a theologian about 150 years ago. And he goes through and he looks at the Gospels and he says, what's the emotional life of Jesus Christ like? And I've talked to you guys before. A lot of times we get kind of tacitly into this space where we think Jesus is either no emotion, he is just stoic and he is above and separated from everything, Or we think that Jesus is kind of a coddling and always soft and no rough edges, but the Gospels present a very different story. Jesus shows a wide range of emotions in the Gospels, anger, joy, sorrow, but do you know what the most common emotion that Jesus shows in the Gospel is? The overwhelming amount of emotional displays are compassion, compassion. And the Greek has a great word. Compassion for us doesn't really evoke anything, but the word in the Greek is the same word you use for your gut. And the word compassion means moved deeply inside of you. And we see Jesus in all these encounters. He goes and he sees crowds who've come to listen to him, and they're starving. They've been with him for days, and they have no food. And it says, and Jesus was moved to feed them. Or when Jesus looks out at Jerusalem and he weeps because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is moved at the depth of who he is when two blind men approach Jesus. And he asks them what it is that they need. And Jesus is moved with compassion to heal them. Jesus is entering a town called Nain and he sees a funeral procession. Of course, Jesus, knowing the situation, knows that this is a widow who's lost her only son. And it says, and Jesus is deeply moved. I want to suggest to you this morning that the starting place for Jesus' interaction with us is this same kind of compassion. I know some of us, it's a lot easier to think that Jesus has high standards and we haven't met them and his mercy is him condescending to us. And that's, that's part of the truth. But actually, the way that Jesus encounters us is through this lens of compassion, being moved deeply at the situation we've gotten ourselves in. You know, this is what the Pharisees absolutely miss. If you look at this story, I'm looking at chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 11. He says to them, which one of you, if you had a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't do everything you could to take hold of it and lift it out? See, the Pharisees had made all these rules about the Sabbath, about keeping God's law, and they'd actually gone beyond God's law to fence God's law, so you didn't break it. And one of the things is you can't work. We talked about this last week. There's all these rules about what you can and can't do to work, right? And what they said is, no, you, you actually can't heal someone on the Sabbath because that would be working. Well, Jesus flips this on its head because he says, okay, but if you had livestock that you owned that was in severe danger, you would go and get it out of the ditch. But this person that you don't see, he's invisible, he doesn't mean anything to you, You're upset if I heal him. What Jesus says to them and what he shows to us is, if you have a vested interest in something, you're liable to look with compassion and do something about it. 
The problem with the Pharisees is they didn't have any compassion for the lost. They didn't have any compassion for the wounded. They didn't have any compassion for the downtrodden. They didn't have a vested interest. And Jesus says, but if it was your property, if it was your money, or if it was someone important to you, then you would reach out and do something. And Jesus says to them, I have a vested interest in this person. God looks at you and he has a vested interest in your life because you are his child. You are made in his image. He wants to do something to reach in and pull you out of the pit because you mean something to him. Don't get lulled into thinking that God has a contractual obligation with his people where if they call out, he has to save them. Think instead about the fact that God loves you and he wants to rescue you and he wants to pull you out of the pit and he moves towards you with compassion. Here's the second thing we learned from this story. This man was unable, and God made him able. He was unable, and God made him able. Think about this. When Jesus encounters him, what does he ask him to do? Think about the story carefully. What does he ask him to do? He asks him to stretch out his hand, which is precisely the thing that he is unable to do. Right? There's two parts to this. Number one, Jesus wants him to show his hand. And this is probably something that this man had oriented his life around never doing. He had oriented his wardrobe and the way that he probably organized his home and the way that he did things in such a way that he never had to show this hand. Why? He was ashamed of it. It was broken. It didn't work the way that it was supposed to work. So the first part is Jesus tells him to put forth his hand. But the second thing he tells him is actually one step beyond that. Jesus says, I want you to un." Fold your hand. One of the commentators observes that the dynamic here is what's true for every person that comes to Christ. Precisely what we are unable but willing to do is what happens when Jesus comes and says, follow me. On your own, you are perfectly incapable of putting sin to death in your life. You're perfectly incapable of paying for the things that you've done that are a violation of God's law. You are perfectly incapable of stretching forth your hand to do what God's called you to do. But the heart that comes to Jesus and says, but I want to, but I want to, I want to follow Jesus, that person, Jesus never turns away. And in fact, beyond that, he makes them able to do what he calls them to do. Have you ever been in a situation where you were just totally out of your depth? I don't feel like I need to give an example of this. You probably observed this in my life pretty quickly, but... All of us find ourselves in situations where we say, God, what are you doing with me in this situation? What do you mean you want me to give in this way? What do you mean you want me to engage with this person? What do you mean you want me to lead out in this area that I have struggled so profoundly in? And what God calls, he supplies. What he asks you to do, he equips you to do. Just like this man, when Jesus encounters him, he says, I want you to stretch out your hand. I want you to take that place in your life that has perpetually been an area of discontentment and shame and hiding, and I actually want you to let me into that place so I can begin to use it for good. Can you imagine what this guy's life like was after this? So he's had this withered hand, and we don't know exactly what's wrong with his hand, but we know that it's unusable, and all of a sudden, Jesus heals him. Think about the sense that he had every time he used that hand after that. Can you imagine the thankfulness when he was able to reach out and just shake somebody's hand? Just open a door. Just use a utensil. Can you imagine the thankfulness that he had when he was doing those things? 
You know, the, the, the application here is easy for us. The area where God's working in your life is usually your withered hand. And some of us don't have a physical malady like that, but we certainly have spiritual areas that are bereft of God's work, hidden from the world. We act like God doesn't even know those things are there. I love the stories of redemption where God points to something like that in my heart and in your heart, and then he makes that a ministry for you to show other people the power of God. One of my good friends is a, is a men's director at Hope is Alive Ministries, and one of their big sayings is, turn your mess into a message. A lot of times, it's exactly the area where you've made the mess that God wants to come in, breathe life, and make you able to serve him in that area. Here's the third thing we learn. He had been hiding, and God brought him into the light. This is the really cool how of this story. How do things get healed in the Bible? Now, this story makes it really plain. He pulls back his cloak or his jacket. He reaches out his hand. God heals him, and all of a sudden, it's usable again. And we have to go down a layer for this to be true in our life, but the principle is exactly the same. You know, in John and in the letters that John wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he plays on this theme constantly, light and darkness, right? And I want to read you this passage from 1st John that is a, a little bit of a guide for us. If you want to be healed, what should you do? Well, John says in 1st John 1, this is the message that we have heard from him, and we proclaim it to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses all sin. The question for us is not do you have areas of darkness in your heart. That's a given. We all have those things. We all have been very accustomed to doing things in the dark. The question is, are you going to allow the light to shine into that part of your life or not? Are you going to open the door and raise the blinds and bring things out into the light, or are you going to continue to hide because whatever is not surrendered to the light will never be healed? That's just the way it works. You know, they say sometimes that sunlight is the best medicine, and that is true spiritually in a way it could never be true physically. The light of Christ is the greatest healing agent ever. Paul puts it this way, you used to be in darkness, you used to do things in darkness, but now you are a child of the light, and you should bring out evil deeds into the dark, and then God would set you free. Some of you know my story, but I think most of us have an encounter early in our Christian life that sets the tone for what God might call us to do later. When I, I, I grew up in a Christian home, but I didn't grow up as a Christian, and I had decided by about high school that it, it actually was pretty nice not being a Christian because you didn't have to do anything you didn't want to. Because morally, you have nobody telling you what to do. You just have to make sure you don't get in too much trouble with your parents. So I thought, this is a great gig. I'm just not going to believe so I can do whatever I want to do. I wouldn't have said it this way then, but it was a pretty good gig because I thought, I'll just be my own God for a while, which, of course, you know, doesn't work out ever. But anyway, I was in high school, and I had the opportunity to cheat on a final exam. And so I did and cheated on it, didn't even think twice about it, got a great grade, or I got a good grade, but not a great grade, because I don't want anybody to know that I had cheated on it. So I intentionally missed a few questions. And I got a great grade on it, I went on with my life, and I didn't think anything about it. So I go back to school after Christmas break, and I get called down to the principal's office. It's that noise that nobody ever wants to hear. Colfax, please come to the high school office, Colfax, high school office. And I go down, and I'm sitting across the table from the principal. 
And he's saying, hey, I, I've uncovered a cheating scandal, and I want, I want everything that you know. I want to know everything that you know about it. There's a big moment of decision. Now, I've got to backtrack a little bit and tell you something that happened between the time that I cheated on the test and the time I was talking to the principal. The night of Christmas, I was asleep in my bed. I was sound asleep, and I started having this dream. And in the dream, it was all these images that have a great connotation of walking with Christ. Because like I said, I grew up in a Christian home, so I'd been to camp, I'd been to church, I'd been to Awana, I had so many badges, you know, you couldn't even count them on my vest at Awana. And none of it had translated down into my heart. And all these images of life with Christ and the good memories I had and the good influence I had start flooding through my mind. And as I'm waking up from this, all of a sudden, everything goes blank in my head. And I sit up in bed, and it is just blackness. And in the dark, there's a voice. And the voice says, Cole, if you ever want to be content in life, it will only be through me. Now, I was not sure what could cause something like that to happen. I didn't know if it was just a bad dream. I, I, so I just went right back to sleep. I was so freaked out by it, I just went right back to sleep. And I woke up the next morning, and I was like, I wonder if that was God. You know, I was not raised, I was, I was raised Presbyterian. Not all Presbyterians are like this, but we were very much frozen chosen. We did not really believe in the operations of the, of the Spirit in this way. But as I hit my knees next to my bed that morning, I said, God, if this is you, then I'm ready. I'm ready to respond to you. And, I, may, and I, I didn't have a ton of faith in it, but I had enough faith to say to God, I'll give you one month of my life, 100% sold out, doing everything that you call me to do, and if it's good, then I'll continue on a month-to-month basis. But if it's, if it's not good, then forever I can say, I tried it, I gave it my all, it's not for me. And God had something in mind. So I go back to school. I'm sitting in the principal's office. I'm a new Christian. I've just started to grow in my faith. And I'm confronted with this principal who says, I want you to tell me everything you know. And this was an area of darkness for me, but I just hedged my bets a little bit. And I thought, lying is probably the best thing to do here. So I lied to him, told him I didn't know anything about it. We litigated it. I got off scot-free. I went home. I was kind of proud of myself until I, my head hit the pillow that night. And one of the things I developed as as a new believer was praying every night before bed. I want to make sure I didn't miss it for the day, so I got to put that in at the end. My head hits the pillow, and I say, Lord, thank you for today. And that night, it was different. That night, I could barely get the words, dear Lord, out of my mouth, and I was stopped in my tracks. Because the conviction was so overwhelming in my heart. And I thought, I can deal with this guilt. I'm not doing it. So I went to sleep that night, woke up the next day, went through the motions, head hits the pillow that night again. Lord, oh, I can't do this. And I was reminded at that moment, not just of my one month, no exclusions commitment, but somehow God had placed a little verse in my heart that maybe I'd memorized when I was a kid that said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What good is it for a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And I was like, I got to do this. So I say, all right, I'm trusting you. I'm going to do this. I go in, confess to the principal, get suspended from school. Two days, one for cheating, one for lying, which I still kind of resent at this point. It was just delayed truth. But 
I get suspended, and I'm really reevaluating my life at that point. And one of the things I'm so thankful about in hindsight is that God gave me an opportunity early, and it's happened hundreds of times since then, to say, are you going to surrender this so it can be healed or not? Are you going to come clean? Are you going to let me in that area, or are you going to draw a line and say, God, you can come this far, but no further? And if you do that, he will never, ever work in the way that he wants to work in your life. The opportunity confronts all of us, whether as a new believer or somebody who's walked with God forever, to do exactly what happens to this man. Will you or will you not bring this into the light? Everything that comes into the light can be healed. Now, what does this look like practically? Well, it's just a matter of in your time in the morning in prayer or when you're confronted with something in your life to say, God, it looks like this is an area I've kept off limits from you, and I want to surrender it. God, there's places in my marriage where I act like the old me, not the new me, where I act in ways that I know are not glorifying to you or to my wife. And God, I want to surrender this to you. There's areas where you say, when I'm in a certain situation or when I'm with a certain friend group or when I'm in a certain place mentally, I am not surrendered to you. I actually go back and do the things that I used to do. I don't want to do that anymore. God, can you give me the strength to expose and go about being accountable for this hidden sin that I have nursed for year after year after year instead of putting it to death like you told me to? You know, some people use the, 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 the metaphor here of treating your sin, your hidden sin, is like raising a lion, cute at first and deadly at the end. That's how sin is. Sin is a degenerative disease. It's not something you can manage. It's not something that you can hide forever. It's not something that you can heal on your own. It must be brought to the light. And it starts with your time with God. Of course, there's other ways to do this too. Bringing sin to the light, oftentimes you have to confess to somebody that's affected by it. You have to confess to somebody who loves you enough to see you as God sees you. Somebody trustworthy enough that they're actually going to preach the gospel to you. But you've got to bring it into the light if you want it to be healed. Now here's the fourth thing we see. He had been weak and God made him strong. He had been weak and God made him strong. This is one of the coolest things that God does with us. You know, this man, we, this, this story is in all three synoptic gospels. That means Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. And it's a very significant story, not just because of the Sabbath regulations, but because of the compassionate heart of Jesus. You know, Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost. Seek and save the lost. That's what Jesus says. My mission is to come and do that. And this story so perfectly embodies Jesus doing just that. Seeking out a person, saving him, healing him, recognizing what God sees in him. And one of the things he does is he takes this man's weakness and he makes him strong. Now Mark tells us, Matthew doesn't include this detail, but Mark tells us that this is the man's right hand. And as you know, the right hand for most people is the source of strength. Certainly in the ancient world, it would have been the overwhelming norm that everybody is right-handed. Part of the problem with this person is it's not just that they are spiritually secluded from everyone else, it's that they are physically impotent to carry out the daily tasks that they find themselves confronting. It's that this person actually cannot care for themselves in the way that he was designed to do it. He doesn't have two working hands, and the double uh, issue for him is the right hand is the one that is withered. 
Now, the other thing we learn is the word withered here is, could cover a wide variety of things. Again, we don't know exactly what was wrong, but this description gives us a good picture. The word withered means dried up, just the way we use it in English. It means something that is dried up and curled up and unable to be used. And what happens in, in this picture that, that Matthew gives us is we see a person whose hand needs water. When you have something that's withered, you have a plant or something like that, something that's withered needs water. And the theme that runs through the Gospels is that Jesus brings spiritual water to people who are thirsty, people who are parched, and here, people who are withered. Now, what happens is Jesus not only physically heals this person, but as we talked about a few weeks ago with the woman at the well, he puts a spring of living water in this person. So that as it goes out into this person's soul, withered areas start to come to life. Do you remember those little toys that we used to play with? They come in like little Easter eggs or something, and they're little sponges. And once you sprinkle a little bit of water, all of a sudden they go from this big to like a life-size dinosaur or something. I mean, these things get huge. And just a little bit of water can affect all of that growth. And what Jesus does, he takes the withered part of this person, he brings living water to it, he expands it to be what God designed. What God wants to do in our lives is he wants to bring himself into the picture. And when he comes into the picture, living water begins to flow out of us. Richard Lovelace's book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, this is such a, this is such a simple quote that I almost felt like not quoting it, but I, I think for, for those of you who want to dive deeper into this, his book is so incredible on what it is that powers continual spiritual life. And we want to be a church that is alive. Right? We do not want to be a church that is withered. We do not want to be a church that's stagnant. We do not want to be a church that preaches a gospel and then lives on our own strength. We want to be a church that has a dynamic and powerful, living water-fueled, vitalizing presence wherever we go. And if you're going to do that, then you've got to get this principle of living water. Because what happens is if you preach a gospel that you don't actually believe, what you do is you bring people in that basically have their lives together, you give them a good message on Sundays, and then they basically go on doing what they were doing everywhere else they go. That is not what the gospel is. The gospel is you come in and you are broken beyond repair and God heals you, puts you back together, starts eliminating sin from your life, and you become a life source wherever you go. That means we're not afraid of big sins, okay? Don't just bring the socially acceptable sins to Christ. Bring everything. We are not afraid that it's like, oh, well, I mean, if there was a little lying and cheating, we could have healed that, but adultery, oh my gosh, we can't do anything about that. That is a lie. We want what has happened to you to be turned into a source of strength for God's kingdom. That means good, bad, ugly, self-righteous or not, socially acceptable or not. We are not afraid of what's going to happen when the light of Christ meets the sin in your life. We know what happens. He begins to heal. Not all at once, all the time. Sometimes gradually. Sometimes not completely until glory, but he begins to heal what he comes into contact with. Lovelace says, spiritual life results from fellowship with God. Spiritual life results from fellowship with God. What that means is spiritual life doesn't result from going through the motions. It just doesn't. Spiritual life doesn't result from keeping up appearances. Spiritual life results when you invite God through his son Jesus to actually come and relate with you. To actually have a living and ongoing relationship 
with him. And in situations like this, I, I just love this picture of this person who has organized his life to not show something. And the very thing that God does is say, you can have your appearances or you can have healing, but you can't have both. You can keep up appearances or you can be whole, but you can't have both. So will you show your withered hand? The application here is so easy for us. God wants to make you whole. He wants to make you strong. He sees you. He moves towards you with compassion and love. He wants to put the pieces back together, but are you going to stretch out your withered hand? Are you going to stretch out your withered hand? Are you going to bring it to the light? Are you going to allow him to take a place of weakness and turn it into a place of strength? Are you going to take a place of sin and allow him to get in? And, and it's going to be messy, but are you going to allow him to get in and redeem that relationship, that area, that practice, that place? Are you going to stretch out in a way that you're so uncomfortable with because you are unable and allow God to do something that only he is able to do? The question for all of us this morning is, what are you going to do with your withered hand? If what doesn't get surrendered doesn't get healed. But everything that's surrendered, God can heal. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And I love, one of the things I love about communion and the way that we do it together here is that we are all confessing as we take communion that we are broken. But communion doesn't stop there. Actually, what you're doing in communion is more than that. What you're doing in communion is you're saying, by this food and by this covenant, I am made whole. It's such a perfect tie-in to this story because every time we take communion together, we're remembering that we were broken and now we are being nourished back to life. That we were excluded, and now we've been invited to the table of the feast of the Lord. As you take the bread and as you take the juice in the cup this morning, what you're declaring is, I want you to have it all. No hiding, no withered places, no darkness. I want you to have it all. So as Sean comes up and, and plays for us, I want, if you don't have one yet, we've got... Uh, communion in the back. Feel free to get up, get one of those. I'll come back up in a minute, and we'll take this together. So as Sean play, uh, plays, let us, let's pray together. Father, as we move towards your table, would you convict us of the areas that we've been hiding? Lord, the areas that in such a silly way, we, we, we live like you don't know about them. Of course you do. Father, remind us that you come towards us with love and compassion. Remind us that you want to take us and make us whole. Father, remind us that uh, you love us. That you're not afraid of our sin. You're not surprised. You're not overwhelmed. But Father, you're willing to heal. So do that this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take the bread together. Father, we thank you that we are hungry and you have given us food and it's the only food that satisfies. Father, help us to realize that our sustenance is you. Our satisfaction is you. Our food is to do your will. And so, Father, as we take this now, we proclaim that we are desperate and dependent on you. Let's take the bread together. Father, as we take this cup, we thank you that you poured out the blood of your son to cleanse us from sin. And Father, I think of that old song, the blood will never 
lose its power. And so, Father, even as it needs to be applied to us constantly, we thank you for this new covenant. We thank you for your son who lived a perfect life so that we could be with you forever, starting now. Let's take the cup together. Father, as we take these, we proclaim your death, your son's death until he comes again, knowing that we're not where we want to be yet. But we're moving that direction. So we invite you, Lord. We invite you to be in all, to fill all, to fill every part of our lives with your presence. So that we might proclaim the death of Christ, the Savior of the world, forever and ever until you come again. Amen. Thanks for being with us this morning. We love you guys. We're so thankful for you. Our elders met this morning to pray for you. If you have things that you want to pray for, please come tell us. We'd love to get to do that with you. We'll see you next week.